Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, otherwise known as FPOG. This week on the podcast, we're talking about charitable giving. We're going to talk about how does it relate to the tax return, why we do it, and how it fits into a rich life. And we're also going to talk about some planning and optimization opportunities for oil and gas professionals. But be sure to listen to the end where we wrap it all together and really talk about how to approach your assets with a 30 and 40 year time horizon and how that relates to charitable giving. All right, Justin, let's start first by really taking a step back and thinking about like, before we get into the strategies, which you and I love to do, it's probably good to just take a step back and talk about the why. So right, like why charitable giving? And of course, we'll get into the tax benefits, but how does charitable giving fit into a rich life and and, and solid financial planning from a, from a meaning and purpose perspective? I think it all starts with what are we accomplishing with financial planning? And we've talked about this before, but instead of asking the question, you know, are we trying to optimize for a specific return? Are we trying to get to a specific dollar amount? Um, those are great things. We, we do want to be mindful of those things, right? But let's take a step back and let's, let's ask the question, what is our ideal scenario in life? And what are we trying to wake up and, and have our life look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And how do we build a rich life and use financial planning to make that happen? So I think it, it starts with that idea. Yeah. And that's a great point, right? Like giving is connected to meaning and purpose and just being a part of causes that are greater than yourself is just so valuable. And we find, you know, people who in retirement are giving of their assets and of their time and energy, you know, are, are really fulfilling, right? Because we're hardwired to to work with causes that are bigger than ourselves. And yeah, I think it's an important call out that in this episode, we're going to be talking about financial capital, right? But that's really just one form of capital. You can give your intellectual expertise. You can give, you know, you can leverage your network, your relationships, your social capital, and your time, right? To causes you care about. And so this piece is really optimizing that. But but to have a really comprehensive giving strategy, you should think of all of those various dimensions of capital and how to leverage them for for more purposeful living. Uh, and of course, we, that's tied to more purposeful giving. So with that, let's dive into the weeds a little bit. So talk to our listeners about really kind of 101 of how is charitable giving related to your tax return and, and kind of some of the intricacies and things to think about there. Yeah, I almost want to back up because I think it's it's critical. We want, we want to ask that question, and we do, if you're listening to this podcast and uh, you're a client or you've met with us before, you've, you've heard that, that question in our meetings. Fast forward five years, 10 years, what's your ideal future scenario? And the, the idea you reap what you sow, certainly that, that idea is relevant in, in every culture. It's a biblical idea, but you reap what you sow is, is always viewed with this negative connotation. And I think it's also helpful to view it in a really positive light and, and just get excited about, hey, you get to reap what you sow and you can sow good things. 
and you give your financial resources, but you also give your other resources, just like you mentioned, Jared, uh, which is so critical. And, and I would even say charitable giving is a really small part of that. And we want to talk about that today because of the tax benefits and, and some of the specific oil and gas, especially in retirement, uh, ways to, to coordinate that. But that's something we want to be at the forefront of every financial plan. What are you trying to sow in your life? And um, what, are, what are you trying to wake up in 10 years and, and have a, a richness and an abundance there? And it probably starts with sowing towards your family and, and spending money on your family and your close friends. And then it goes outward from there. But uh, sorry, that's a big tangent. Let's, uh, let's get on task with some of these specific tax benefits. So I'm going to start out and give a quick, uh, we'll, just, we'll just pose the question and, and you can help us walk through it. How do we think about standard deduction versus itemized deduction? How do you even get credit tax-wise for charitable giving? Yeah. So there's really two paths you could take. So the standard deduction, which basically means you'll take the larger of the two and it reduces, it's a deduction uh, that reduces your taxable income. And so the standard deduction for 2022 is, what is it, Justin? Just over $25,000. If you're married, filing joint, just over 12,500 if you're filing single. Great call out. So if your uh, eligible deductions are less than that amount, when you add them all together, you will in fact take that standard deduction. But if your cumulative deductions are above that, then you will take the itemized deductions because it has a larger impact on reducing your taxable income. And what types of categories are included in computing what your itemized deductions are? Justin, what's all included that? We know, we know charitable giving is because you know that's what this podcast is about. But what else is included in getting at that number? All right. So we've got property tax. We have mortgage interest. So uh, if you own a house, both of those might be relevant. Property tax almost certainly will be relevant. If you do not yet have your house paid off, well, your mortgage interest for your home mortgage also counts. And then we also have, uh, let's, let's go, I, I mentioned property tax, but technically let's expand this definition and let's just say state and local taxes, right? So any state and local taxes can go towards that, although we're capped, aren't we? Yeah, the cap is currently 10,000 for SALT. State and local taxes, great, easy to remember acronym. We don't talk about the state income tax very much because most of our clients are in Texas without state income tax. But that is one of the things that you know is swirling around in legislators' heads. Uh, they're considering increasing the salt limit so that you can deduct more of that. So, so what that means by the cap, even if your mortgage interest plus state income taxes paid plus property taxes paid are thirty thousand you can only use 10,000 of that to get to the standard deduction. So even though you're paying drastically more than that, you only get credit for up to 10,000 of that. So what that results in is, uh, depending on how much you give, if you get 10,000 in salt taxes and a little bit from other deductions, you would need to give at least, you know, in the range of 10 to $15,000 a year to meet, to equal the standard deduction, which means you would get no incremental tax benefit for your gift. You need to contribute even more to get credit for it. Great point. Health expenses can also play a role there, but they really have to be substantial in order to count in that calculation. So I think you hit the nail on the head. You typically have to be giving, uh, especially if you're married, you have to be giving 
a lot uh, to charity in order to start seeing a dent in your tax return. Yeah, so that's really just kind of 101. Hey, what's what's going on with charitable giving and how does it relate to the tax return? Because Justin, you and I are known for just diving straight into the solutions, but I think it was helpful for our listeners just to take a step back. Okay, so now that, now that we've kind of laid the groundwork of talking about how charitable giving is connected to the deduction and you know potential tax implications, let's talk about some tax planning and some giving optimization that can take place. And I know that there's probably a couple strategies related to specifically oil and gas professionals that we're primarily working with that, that are really applicable here? Great. I think the first one we should we should point out is uh, what asset are you gifting to charity? And then, you know, Jared, you just mentioned you've got to hit uh, 12,600 if you're single, over 25,000 if you're married, you have to hit that as a total itemized deduction. So you have to give a lot to charity in order to, to get any credit on your tax return. So let's back up and say, maybe you're not going to get credit tax-wise. Maybe you're, maybe you're not gonna surpass the standard deduction, but you might value having some charitable organizations in your life, whether it's your local church, a local food bank, or a national organization, whatever the case may be. You might have charitable organizations that you want to support whether or not you get a tax return. If that's your situation, this first point is very relevant. Stop giving cash. Instead, give securities, whether it's an individual stock or a fund that have appreciated. Give those, give those to charity instead, and that can remove your capital gain within that investment. And it's worth calling out there that the charity isn't subject to the capital gain they essentially get a step up in the basis, right? So what that means is we'll use just round numbers. So if you have $100,000 in stock you're giving and $90,000 is capital gains, if you were to give $100,000 to a charity, they would get the full value of that gift. You would not pay any capital gains uh, and you could essentially deduct that charitable gift that could be incorporated into your itemized deduction. And there are, so like like we said with SALT and the state and local tax limits of $10,000, there are limits to giving. It depends on the type of asset, uh, but it's typically a function of your adjusted gross income. But even on the low end, you can give up to 50% of your AGI. So the so the maximum is much, much higher. But Justin, let's talk about how this fits into, right? One of the big ideas that's important to us is lifetime lifetime tax rate, right? And when you're employed, you're in some of your highest tax years, right? So is there any advantage to pre-funding giving? And let's talk about the, the donor advised fund a little bit and how this all fits into this. Because a lot of our strategies that think about, you know, the lifetime tax rate Really, we can kind of be intentional with strategically bunching. So talk with our listeners a little bit about that and how that fits into that idea. Absolutely. So you just defined it or you use the term really well, bunching. And uh, let's just dive into the specific definition of that. You're bunching multiple years of charitable contributions into one year. So if you're someone who is going to give, I'm just going to say 20,000 or, or let's use 10,000. It'll be better for our example with the way the tax code is currently written. If you give $10,000 a year to charity, well, right now, um, if you're a married taxpayer, you are not getting any tax credit for that $10,000 gift, most likely. So instead of giving $10,000 every year and get, and you would just take the standard deduction. So you're not getting credit for that charitable contribution. 
What if you bunch five years worth of charitable giving all into one year? So if you are uh, giving 10,000 a year, let's bunch five years together. All of a sudden you've got a $50,000 charitable uh, contribution plus your $10,000 state and local tax, whether it's state income tax or property tax or local taxes whatever the case may be in that in that scenario so you've now you're you're now looking at a $60,000 itemized deduction in one year so what did we do we bunched 5 years together we did it all in one year and now you're staring at a $60,000 itemized deduction in this example let's keep it clean and uh, assume that there's very little or no mortgage interest so $60,000 tax deduction over a five-year period, if you bunch all of your giving into one year, you got a $60,000 tax deduction instead of a $25,000 standard deduction. So what's the difference there? $35,000 in a, in a tax deduction. Let's say you're at the 35% tax rate and uh, all of a sudden you have a very meaningful material impact in lowering your taxes. You lowered your taxes by five figures um, in that example. And it's important to note, you actually gave the exact same amount to charity. Uh, you paid the exact same amount in state and local tax, property tax. Uh, so your, your giving, your, your property tax payment didn't increase or change, but you lowered your tax rate by a five-figure amount. That's a big deal. Yeah, but one of the things you didn't touch on that we get, the question we get a lot when we introduce this idea is like, hey, I don't know what charities I want to give to five years from now, right? Like, you can do this without relinquishing control. And this is this is why the donor advised fund matters. It's essentially a charitable vehicle that's earmarked for charitable purposes. And from that vehicle, you can make gifts to organizations, right? So what this does is, you know, you can make this big itemized gift to a donor advised fund and then out of the donor advised fund to the charity at whatever time you deem necessary. And so you get the benefit, but you also maintain control and autonomy. So you, you know, once the funds go into the donor advised funds, they're irrevocably earmarked for charitable purposes, but you still get to control where those go. And, you know, if you want to build a giving legacy, you could also invest uh, the assets into a donor advised fund. And one of the nuances here that's, that's really valuable from the charity's perspective is, you know, you, you could technically gift appreciated stock to a charity, but a lot of charities, especially smaller ones, aren't set up for that. And they hear this idea and they go, I don't like, I don't have, I don't know. You send it to my bank account. No, you need a bro. The charity needs a brokerage account and to basically receive those shares and liquidate them and move them over and provide you a receipt. So really it kind of serves two purposes, especially for smaller organizations, right? It, you know, it's cleaner. The end charity gets cash instead of securities. They have to figure out what to do with and how to correctly earmark to you. And you maintain that autonomy to give to any causes you like at whatever time you like. Uh, the only thing is you just get to front load uh, the expense in a high tax year, which is increases that deduction, which can be really valuable from a tax perspective. That's a really important topic to cover. So donor advice fund, uh, who has the donor advice funds right now? Fidelity Charitable is the largest one in the world. Um, interesting to know, Fidelity Charitable, their donor advice fund. I believe it is currently not just the largest donor advised fund in the world. I, I believe it's the largest 501c3 charity in the world, period. Vanguard also has a donor advised fund, and I think Schwab does as well. Is that correct? Yeah, Schwab does as well. Okay, great. 
So you've got several different uh, very well-known brokerage firms that are able to offer a donor advice fund. And again, huge advantage because you can give, in our example, you can give $50,000 in one year, but your charities that you support, they could get the exact same amount of money at the exact same time that you would normally give it. You could schedule grants on a monthly or quarterly basis for the next five years in that scenario from your donor advice fund. One other benefit, Jared, did we talk about record keeping? Donor advice funds, they allow you to essentially get one tax form at the end of the year. So let's say that you give $50,000 into your donor advice fund. But what if you're someone who supports, let's say, 14 different charitable organizations? Well, if you're not doing a donor advice fund, you do need to keep track of all of those charitable receipts, right? If you're going to itemize your deductions, you you need to organize, receive, and, and store all of those. But if you use a donor advice fund, it really takes care of that for you. You're not getting 14 receipts from 14 different charitable organizations. Uh, no, instead, you're getting one receipt, one tax form, from one organization, whether it's Vanguard, Charitable, Fidelity, Charitable, or Schwab, whatever it may be. Yeah. And so there's really some big benefits and the costs aren't prohibitive, right? So donor advised funds are a fairly new thing. But prior to that, if you wanted to create a mechanism for philanthropic initiatives, you had to have a foundation, which meant an additional tax return and a bunch of additional complexity. So the donor advised fund, the barriers to entry are very low. And so you can fund a donor advised fund with cash or appreciated stock or in Fidelity's case, I think they even accept, you know, like interest in small businesses. So you can really get creative in terms of what you put into that. If, if you know, if you want to use something with large embedded gains for, for a philanthropic purpose. And I think the other really cool thing is, right, the fact that funds can grow, right? So if you make a big lump, lump sum payment and you don't want to distribute that all, you can invest some of those funds, right? Take advantage of compounding on the on the philanthropic side as well. Um, and you can name multiple grant writers, people who can basically make grants from the charity. And that's a great way to get the family involved in kind of executing on the philanthropic mission of your family. So there's really a lot of exciting practical and tax implications, but also legacy, collaboration, giving, meaning, impact, purpose uh, implications as well. So it's a really a great tool. Absolutely. And that leads well into our next and and last topic, and that is the state planning and thinking about the big picture. Yeah. So, you know, at a high level, there's really three places. Uh, So actually, let's take a step back and talk about uh, what's, Justin, what's the estate tax exemption? So it's currently about about 24 million if you're married, about 12 million if you're single. Right. So essentially what that means is if uh, if you are passing on to heirs amounts in excess of the exemption, it is this subject to aggressive taxes. Uh, 50%, right, is the... Currently at 40%, but yeah, I think I think historically it has kind of toggled. Uh, it hasn't always been there. Yeah. And that's a, that's a moving number. And I think there's political pressure to move that number up versus down and, and compress uh, where the exemptions move. So that sounds like an astronomically big number to our listeners. Right. But, but Justin, I think it's because we were talking about this before the show, right? Like this impacts a lot of people who it doesn't appear to impact today. So talk to me about like kind of what we were talking about before about, you know, just having that long-term frame of reference. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is a topic we want to start talking about a lot. And um, I think the best way to frame it is let's pretend that you enter retirement with a specific amount of money. I'm going to pick $5 million because it's a nice round number. So if you enter retirement with $5 million, well, that's the assets that you might have. Let's say you're 60 years old, another good round number. So in this scenario, you're thinking, well, I have $5 million. So that's how I'm going to organize my retirement income. I'm going to need to pay taxes on some portion of a $5 million amount. But instead, that's really not accurate. If you look at what's happened in the markets and retirement income and taxes over the past century, and and most specifically in the markets, if you enter retirement with 1 million, 3 million, 5 million, 10 million, 50 million, whatever the number may be, you are likely going to uh, finish your life with about four times that amount in retirement income or taxable income, but also your remaining balance. So the income that you take from that, in our example, $5 million, plus the remaining balance at the end of your life, over the last century, at almost any point that you retire, you're you're probably not staring at $5 million. You're probably staring at $20 million. And there were several different scenarios in the past century that were far, far better than that. So you weren't looking at, at $20 million in total retirement income over 30 or 40 years plus remaining balance. You were looking at $30 million plus. And so I think the, the question that we have to ask is we have to start to ask ourselves, who do you want to receive your money? Uh, between family members or friends, so heirs, so people, we'll just say people. Do you want people to receive it? Do you want the IRS to receive it? Or do you want charitable organizations to receive it? Uh, So again, it's really important to start asking these questions. Jared, what's the historical estate tax exemption? It's abnormally high, right? I don't know. Like if you took the averages, it's probably closer to half of what it is today. Even half as high. That's right. That's right. And so Really, like it, just with this point, Justin, I think you want what you're illuminating. And we've talked about this in other podcasts, but indecision is a decision, right? So like one of the things we do is, right, this may not be an issue to you. And you may hear these big numbers and think estate taxes will never impact me. If you continue to invest as a long-term investor and, you know, not try to time the market, remain invested in the markets, continue to be prudent with, you know, retirement distributions and all those things, you're right. This could become an issue. So thinking about, okay, how does that happen today? And then kind of fleshing out your convictions of, okay, where do I want these inherited assets to go? Right. I think it's huge and something that our listeners need to focus on. Justin, let's go back for a sec. Cause one of the things we didn't talk about is I, I forgot about NUA, right? Like that is huge. Right. So, like, point. so, so if you're, if you're an oil and gas retiree, right. Net unrealized appreciation. We have an episode for it. We'll link to it in the show notes. But essentially what the result of that is you have a lot of really low cost basis company stock. And so you have concentrated exposure in one company in large embedded capital gains. So if you're an oil and gas listener and you have some NUA shares and you're trying to figure out, okay, where, you know, I'm bought in philosophically to this idea of kind of pre-funding my giving and taking advantage of the deduction when I have, when I have income, right? Because, you know, 50% of AGI once you're retired is it's a much, it's a substantially lower number than when you have W two income. So you know, if you're an oil and gas professional and you're retiring and you have some NUA assets, those, you know, your light, the, the light should be going off in the back of your head thinking about this is a potential resource for uh, kind of pre funding some of your philanthropy. And 
talking about NUA in the estate planning section is very appropriate because really odd wrinkle with NUA that a lot of people miss is that you are not allowed to take a step up in basis on NUA shares. So basically every asset in life currently in our tax code gets a step up in basis. Uh, If you have a house in Houston that you bought for $40,000 50 years ago, and it's now worth a million dollars, you get a step up in basis. Uh, Your heirs do whenever you pass. If you own stock, if you own stock funds, if you own other real estate, whatever whatever you happen to own, you get a step up in basis uh, when you pass. NUA shares are a very unique exclusion in the tax code to that rule. So if you have uh, $6 um, ExxonMobil shares, or if you're Chevron ESOP, or maybe in ConocoPhillips, a leveraged stock fund, if you have really low basis shares at your company stock, and it's now worth, you know, let's say 10 or 20 times or more that amount on, on current market value, uh, well, really, really strategic uh, place to think about charitable giving. Think about it this way. If you have low basis shares that you elect in UA on and you do any charitable giving, give those stocks to charity. Jared, there's not a wash sale rule, is there, on giving and then repurchasing the same position? That's a good question. I don't actually know that off the top of my head. My guess would be because it's not it's not a transaction on your end, right? That's right. It's a gift. Yeah. So that's right. Good. So no wash sale. So if you have a five dollar Exxon Mobil stock share that you elect NUA on, and you give that to charity, but you're thinking, hey, I think Exxon Mobil uh, could do well for the next five years. I don't want to sell it yet. You should still give that position to charity, and then take cash outside in, in another source of your assets and buy ExxonMobil stock. And you just gave yourself a step up in basis and the new shares that you just purchased, those are eligible to get a step up in basis within your estate plan. And so NUA shares are a really strategic source of charitable giving. Yeah, definitely. And right, this is really kind of like 1.0 blocking and tackling. There's a whole lot of things we didn't even have time to cover today. Like crats and cruts and how charitable trusts can really kind of optimize some of these things while like when you when you do have in fact have a taxable state and you are funding a donor advised fund but you still you know have an estate tax exemption so there as your assets grow the complexity as well as the opportunity for charitable assets to make a meaningful impact on on a your cumulative assets matters, but we're we're really excited about charitable giving uh, across, regardless of where you are on the spectrum. Even if you're not getting any itemized deduction, we see value in you doing that. But you know, assuming that you are, there's definitely some things you can do to uh, to optimize. Justin, you got anything else as we wrap up? That's it. Love this topic. As always, feel free to reach out with questions and ideas for future episodes. Thanks. Podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.